Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more information about us, please visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. All right. My friends, are you ready? Yes. We have a lot of things happening. April's going to be great. Um, God is working in a lot of ways. And one of the things I keep hearing about is that God is really working in a lot of people doing the Bible reading plan, and I hope you're doing that. I'm not trying to keep talking about announcements, but this book, a lot of people are doing it. It's just taking us through the Gospels this spring. And some of you I know, you're like, oh, I'm behind. Don't worry about it. Just keep reading. You know, the idea is just to just keep reading, read through the Gospels. It takes you all year to read through the Gospels. Um, we're pushing towards reading uh, through the Gospels by Easter, um, and some of us will make it, and some of us will finish by June, and some will finish by 2020. It's okay. And uh, I just want us to keep reading. I'm going to encourage you to keep reading. Um, also, as we get going today, I want to show you a picture. Uh, this is uh, from this last week. Stephen and I, um, we joined Luis Diaz, who's my brother-in-law there in the middle there with the green shirt on, um, in El Salvador. We got to go down there for four days, and it was a really incredible experience that I'll share more about in a couple weeks because I think there's some opportunities for us to go and to serve uh, there. But Luis is from El Salvador, and... He and my sister Sally started a, uh, a mission called Mission El Salvador there in his hometown about seven years ago. It's an amazing story. I can't wait for you to hear more about it. Um, but uh, standing in families' homes like this, that's a dirt home that they live in with dirt floors and a metal roof. And uh, in that particular house, there wasn't much of a roof. And, and they have gone in and they've started building homes over the last number of years. And instead of dirt homes, putting block homes up with, found, with cement foundations, a, a solid roof to give these people some uh, better living conditions, among other things that they're doing in this town of El Naranjo. And uh, anyway, it's a fantastic story. I can't wait to tell you more about it. Um, but I think one of the things that I saw, of course, while we're in El Salvador is some consistent themes that we have here. And one of the things is that, man, there's a deep need for prayer. We cannot, we cannot do this. Like the need was overwhelming, right? And I'm going, and there is someone I know that can, not to be too cheesy, right? Like there is someone that we know that can do anything. And that is just once again my, my reminder of our dependency on prayer to see not just our lives change, but there are so many people around the world that need not only the love of Jesus, but they need the basic needs of humanity. And uh, the fact that we might as a church be able to help be a part of that, that God would work through us in a way. It's something I'm excited about. And, uh, but I do begin, every, I do believe everything begins with prayer. Have you heard me say that? Um, it actually begins with Jesus. But because Jesus was into prayer, you can't talk long about Jesus without talking about prayer. And, and so today, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about prayer. Surprise, surprise. And, uh, and like I said, we're talking about Jesus because we can't talk about Jesus or lean into Jesus for too long without leaning into prayer. And so I want to get into a passage today it's in Mark chapter 11. This is um, a beautiful passage that sort of pulls many of the themes that we should be pulling together. They kind of happen and they're alive in the story of Jesus. And we get to see a side of Jesus that we don't get to see often uh, in the Gospels. It's one that is significantly important. So it's Mark chapter 11, verse, starting in verse 15. And again, we're talking about prayer. And here we go. It says this, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers 
and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now this is an extraordinary moment, right? A place, uh, it happened at the end of, of Jesus's ministry. Many commentators say this is the event that got Jesus crucified. As it said in the text there, that the chief priests were looking at him, looking for a way to kill him. This is a highly emotional Jesus, isn't it? This is an arrestable moment happening in the life of Jesus. And the key sentence is verse 17. I think we all see that, where he says that, that, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer? But you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, this is an interesting story because this is actually in all four Gospels. Every Gospel includes this particular story, and this is called often Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And whenever there's a story that happens in all four Gospels, it's, it, I think it's especially important. It's one that you take notice of. Because each one of the four gospel writers felt it important enough to include it. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do something very similar with this story. They put it near the end of Jesus' ministry. This is right before he does get arrested. So the chronology of it is at the end of the gospels. But John does something different. John has this story at the beginning of the gospels. In fact, it's in John chapter 2, and which makes you kind of wonder, why is that? Why are they different? And there's a couple of reasons. So you see four stories, three of them are at the end, one is at the beginning of the gospel. Why is that? Well, two kind of explanations of it. One, those who are more conservative in their approach of reading the Bible, they often think, well, Jesus did it twice. He cleansed the temple at the beginning and the end of his ministry. John only recorded the one at the beginning, the other three recorded the one at the end. But for those who read the Bible with a little bit more of a relaxed approach, but still believe in the authority of scriptures, they believe, no, no, no. This only happened once, but John just put it at the beginning of the gospel because he, he wanted to emphasize the importance of it, that this was, he was signaling how significant this moment was by putting a story at the end all the way at the beginning. You ever watched a movie where the, end, the beginning of the movie starts at the end? You know what I'm talking about? There's this big moment that happens at the beginning of the movie, and then the movie rewinds and leads you to that moment. Are you with me? And this is maybe what, so John might have been more like a filmmaker. He was less of a historian and more of a filmmaker, more of a storyteller. And so John was telling a story, and he starts his story by saying, there's a moment when Jesus cleared the temple. There was a moment when he, was, he had the righteous anger erupt in him, and something happened where he declared that his house would be a house of prayer. All amidst the scene that was taking place in the temple that was so far from it. And so John does this a lot throughout his Gospels. Like I said, probably more of a filmmaker, if you will, than a historian and puts this smack dab. So no matter what you believe, if you believe that it happened twice or if you believe John ordered it to the, put it at the beginning, it obviously elevates the significance of this story, the significance of this moment. So if you can imagine the drama of the scene, there would have been tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem. Some say that there would be three to 400,000 people traveled to Jerusalem during during times of feasts and festivals, festivals. And of course, this is the season of Passover, that they're there. So there's thousands of people in the city, probably 10,000 or at least, at minimum, 
multiple thousands of people in the temple at the time that Jesus and this story takes place. In addition, the people would have been, in addition to the people, there would have been all sorts of animals uh, being sold, right, to make, to make sacrifices. The, pe- the reason that people pilgrimaged to Jerusalem was to make sacrifices in the temple to atone for their sin. And so they'd make these sacrifices. And you'd hear, so you'd hear all these birds squawking and lambs ewing. Is that what they do? I don't even know. Buying. I don't know what lambs do. Yes. So people would come and they would purchase these animals, right? To make a sacrifice. And if you were poor, you might purchase a dove. If you had a little more money, you might purchase a lamb. And on top of that, buying and selling, Herod, the king of Israel at the time, he had put in place a temple tax. A temple tax to, to pay for the new temple that had just been built. So this is not, we're familiar with this, right? In Oklahoma City, we had a penny sales tax for a project called MAPS, right? And it's still going on. And we're paying a penny on every dollar to pay for things like a river walk and the thunder, basically, right? And, and we think, oh, wow, how brilliant MAPS was. No, 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 no. This has been going on a while. You know what I mean? They, they had their temple tax to build their Chesapeake Arena, but only it was the holy temple of the Lord right? So actually, he makes a currency for this purpose. Herod makes a currency for this purpose. They didn't want to use the Roman currency, of course. They wanted their own currency. So they minted and created their own coins. And these coins, believe it or not, could only be used in the temple to buy these animals that people needed to make these sacrifices with, which is one of the main reasons that all the people are there in Jerusalem, right? So Herod and his executive board, whoever they are, they set the exchange rate. How many of you guys can put two and two together here? If you're setting your own exchange rate, it's a pretty good way to make some money, right? It's a pretty good way to like, ah, maybe we can overvalue my coins that I've minted of myself. And so, yeah, your, your two denarii equal, you know, I'm going to give you one of mine back or whatever. And you're going to make, he's going to make money, right? And so these pilgrims coming in with their hard-earned money, are being subjected to price gouging at exchange tables. And on top of that, there's overpriced doves and lambs. And oh yeah, the rich guy, he needs a bull because he, he really sinned this last year, right? So, there's all this commotion in the temple courts. It probably feels a little bit more like a stock exchange floor, you know what I mean? Like everybody's shouting and screaming, get your lambs! <laughs> Buy three, get one free. I don't know what they're saying. (laughs) All sorts of chaos. And at the core of this whole scene is an an organizing way to make money. So you can understand people come to make, or to come to worship and to sacrifice, but there's this structure in place. It's all about making a profit. This is the scene that Jesus enters. He comes into the temple courts. He sees all that's happening and all that is has become and it sends him into this absolute righteous anger. So again, imagine the scene. Jesus sees this. He grabs a table where this money is being exchanged. 
price gouging happening in the temple of God. And he grabs it and he flings the table over and you can just hear the coins just scatter across the floor. Then he goes and he grabs another table and he flings it over and the coins fly through the air. And you can imagine these people sitting at the tables, working the tables, they start screaming at Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's my money you're doing. And, and he, he then jumps up on a table and he says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And he says, in you, and he's probably pointing at some priests, you know, wearing some pointy white hats. He says, and you have made it into a den of robbers. Such a dramatic scene. No wonder John starts with this, right? No wonder it's in every gospel. So why is Jesus so passionate here? Why does Jesus point to prayer as the action even that he wanted in this moment? My father's house should be called a house of prayer. He could have said, my father's house should be called a house of worship. My father's house should be called a house of service. He could have said anything, but he pointed to prayer, didn't he? He said, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. We're about to set off on another season of night and day prayer in just a few short days, in eight days. And maybe knowing why Jesus did what he did here will help us know why we're going to do what we're about to do. I want to give you some context. Let me show you a picture of the temple during Jesus' day. I'll let that soak in for a minute. But in, in, the, in this day, there was a, in the middle of the temple was this high structure, and this was the Holy of Holies. Maybe you've heard this before, that term. This is the Holy of Holies. There was a temple there, I mean, excuse me, a, a curtain there that separated the Holy of Holies from the next court. And the next court, just outside of the Holy of Holies, was what's called the Court of the Priests. In the court of the priests or the court of the Levites, the only people that can go into the court of the, of the priests were priests and Levites. And you had to be born a Levite, by the way. So unless you were born this way, you weren't going into this court. Are you with me? The next one, it says court of the Israelites. That's the next, if you're going concentric circles out, the next ring is the court of the Israelites. This was for only men. So people who were born as a man and born... As an Israelite, they could be in that court, but if you happen to be born a woman or you happen to be born uh, a Greek, no chance you're getting in there. Then the next ring out was the court of the women, which was for women Israelites. You had to be born, of course, an Israelite if you weren't an Israelite. So there was this, already we're starting to see these divides based on ordination and gender, and then all of a sudden it gets racial, right? Because now it's also you, if you aren't a woman and you aren't, or if you, excuse me, if you're not an Israelite, a priest, a man, whatever, the last court out here is the court of the Gentiles. This is where plebes like us get to hang out. You know what I'm saying? This is where people who weren't born with the right, the right kind of classification got to come. And this is where we would go. And just so you know, people, people who weren't Israelites worshiped the creator God, came here to give sacrifices. They had maybe, they had, they had started following God in their life. And so they too would come to the temple, but this is the only place they could go. And it's in the court of the Gentiles that this scene with Jesus and the money changing tables takes place. So this was a very real story. And I was reading recently about a plaque that was dug up in the 1870s by an archeologist. And the plaque is, is dated back to this time of this temple, which by the way, this didn't last much longer after Jesus. So it's with just within years 
It's just within years of Jesus' life. In fact, he probably saw this plaque hanging on a wall, and it was hanging on a wall between, just so you know, the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And this is what it said. No foreigner, meaning no Gentile, is to go beyond the balustrade in the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will be responsible for his own death, which will follow. So in big fat red letters, there's this sign that says, if you enter into the court of the women, the court of the, Isra- the first ring of Israelites, you will die and it will be your fault. So here we have this brutal hierarchy, right? An exclusion from the presence of God because where is the presence of God? It's in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant resides, where this place is so holy and so sacred that priests could only enter it once a year. And the rest of the time they were in their little court. The only time you're getting to anywhere near if you will, the presence of God, the closest you could get if you weren't born an Israelite, was the court of the Gentiles. So imagine you've traveled from the ends of the earth, which at that time maybe was a week's travel or two weeks travel, and the closest you could get is the Gentile court, perhaps the woman's court, perhaps maybe even the court of the men. So something rises up within Jesus in this moment. Because he knows that part of his mission is to pull down these divides. To pull down the divides of not only race and gender and things like that, but to pull down the divides between man and the presence of God. And so it's almost like in this moment, it comes out of him. He says, I want everybody to come on in. Come on in to the court of the priests. Because you are all priests. Have you heard that said? Come on in, women, to the court of the men. Come on in, Gentiles, all the way in to the Holy of Holies. This is what Jesus actually does. He invites everyone into the presence of God. And this is so, so, so important in our understanding of Jesus. Because have I mentioned, I don't know if I've mentioned this quite yet over the last almost 50 weeks, Jesus changes everything about everything. Jesus came and he gave us full access. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 10. Maybe this verse will make some sense after getting a picture of the temple. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. They're standing in those courts, right? Doing what they're supposed to do, helping people make sacrifices. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest, who's this priest? Jesus had offered for All time, one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And then if we skip down to verse number 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. What is that? The holy of holies. Since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by what? By what? The blood of Jesus. Now we can enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his body. So now this curtain between the Holy of Holies and the court of the priests has been torn. The, the court, these, all, all this is going away and he's giving total access to every man, woman, and child and to the presence of God. This is huge. And since we have great priests over the house of God, let us draw near to God. What do we do? How do we draw near to him? The only way we're drawing near to him is because we have access to him. With a sincere heart and the full assurance that the faith brings. So Jesus opens a way 
to the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You guys remember at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, there was an event that happened after he breathed his last, last breath where the temple curtain was torn in two. You guys know this part of the story, right? You remember this? This is significant because what happens, it actually says that in Matthew 27, it says, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus opens a way for anyone, no matter what sin, what past, what present, to step into a prayer room and encounter the presence of God. To step into something and encounter the living God. We can kneel down by the side of a bed and we can be in the Holy of Holies. Prayer is what ushers us in to the power and presence of God in the miraculous. I love the story of my, uh, my brother-in-law, Luis. Someday you'll hear his whole story. I mentioned I got to spend some time with him this week, but about 11, 12 years ago, he was lost, and he was in a deep, deep struggle, alcohol, far from God. And there was a moment that everything almost came apart for him his whole life. But he tells the story now that his mother prayed for him every day for 25 years, prayed for his salvation. And he knew she was praying. He had other people praying for him as well. But he knew he needed to change his life. This is again 11, 12 years ago and leave behind things like alcohol and sin. And finally one night, one night, his, his mom's prayers were answered. He, he fell to his knees by his bed, a moment of surrender to God. And the next day he went to church and he gave his life to Christ. And, and what was so powerful this week is I got to see him do this right here. He's here meeting with a group from his hometown of men. This is a recovery group for drug and alcohol. And he's telling his story and he's encouraging them because he's been there. And when I, when I saw that, I couldn't understand a word, by the way. Mm -hmm. Oh, hola, you know, whatever. Banyo. I didn't understand a word, but I understood everything. He points back to his mom's prayers almost every time I hear him tell a story. I heard another story the other day, um, a couple weeks ago actually. Uh, Allie Reed in our church told her an amazing story of how prayer and breakthrough kind of happened in her life recently. And I asked her if, if we could share the story, and so she typed it up and she sent it to me. And this is, this is what she wrote. Three years ago, I injured my foot running. It's a slow healing type of injury, and I'd been told it would take up to 10 years to heal. And it was off and on for a while, but about a year ago, it became a constant source of pain, sometimes dull, sometimes excruciating pain. During this time, I also developed IT band syndrome in the other leg, which is a pain from the hip to the knee. So both of these injuries developed to become a constant pain, even while sitting and lying down. Some days it was very difficult to walk. So a few weeks ago, when Christy told her story of healing, I knew I should ask for prayer. So that night I did, and I felt some relief, but the following Monday it was still there, and Haley during a prayer night, asked, told me she wanted to pray over me again. 
That night I was in some of the worst pain I've been in, been in since I'd, these injuries had begun. And as she prayed, I felt a complete peace come over me and a belief that God would heal me from this in his time. But when I stood up, I had no pain in my foot or leg. I was amazed and thankful, but I still expected it to come back. I expected the pain to return every day for the next week, but it never did. And that was on February 25th. And to this day, no pain. Yeah, amen, right? So <clears throat> prayer may take 25 years. Or prayer may be the very, the, the power to heal or breakthrough may be in the next prayer you pray. Understand that. I've, I've heard it said that prayer rooms are just holy of holies. Through prayer, God gives dreams. God, God releases destinies. He draws people. He changes hearts. He heals bodies and he saves children. So why are we doing 24-7? Why do we have 24-7 prayer? Why do, we, why do we have a prayer room? You, maybe you go to church here and you're like, oh, it's cool, it's good, but like, why, is there so much in, why is there so much energy around it? Why can't we just do a general call to prayer, a message to prayer, and then just kind of trust everybody's going to go do something with it? <laughs> why can't we just be like, hey, let's pray more? And everybody's like, yeah, and then we go and we, you know, just... We just, kind of, we just kind of say all the right things, but we don't actually call us to a body of believers where we actually commit to someone, where we see one another praying. Why don't we do this? I think we do it because, you know what? Your life and my life and the life of this church and the life of the church has had too little prayer. We need to saturate and drench ourselves in the power and the presence of God that's only ushered in through prayer. That's what we must do. Obviously, this call to 24-7 prayer is not a call for you to pray for 24 hours. <laughs> but could you pray for an hour or two or more every week for three weeks? We pray. I, I, you know, 24-7 prayer just isn't just about prayer. It's about change. It's about seeing change. I read a, a quote to you a few weeks ago, and it just said this. We don't pray because we're into prayer. We pray because we're into Jesus. We pray because we're into Jesus. We believe that Jesus, Jesus leads us into a being, becoming a person of deep-seated, passionate prayer. So this is not a rallying cry to go charge the hill. <laughs> this is not a call to go earn your church points, as if that were a thing. Oh, yeah, that's a thing. This is not some religious checkbox. This is a vision that thousands of people around the world have stepped into. In fact, thousands of 24-7 prayer rooms exist all over the world right now. They set the stage for people to stop their busy lives and to focus their hearts and their attention on their creator. You know, there's a literal movement, I've, I've shared it before, there's a literal movement called 24-7 prayer. And again, it's a movement of prayer rooms around the world that have been happening for over 20 years, but you know that prayer rooms have been happening for much longer than 20 years, right? In fact, the church itself was born in a prayer room. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Listen to this, and you're going to help me with this one. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem 
When they arrived, they went upstairs, say it with me, to the where they were staying. They all joined together constantly, say it with me, in hmm, along with the women and Jesus' mother and brothers. God birthed an unstoppable movement in prayer. You know, days later, those joining constantly together in prayer would experience the Holy Spirit coming upon them and releasing them to start what is now the New Testament church, which we're a part of today. We want more of the Spirit. We want more salvations. We want more healing. We want more breakthrough. We've been praying for those four things for over a year, for a year now. But we also want more than that. That's what's crazy. We want more, we want more hurting people to, to receive some relief, to, to be served and to be loved. We want, we want good people who are trapped in loneliness to find community and friendship. We want hurting people healed, their bodies literally healed because they're in physical pain. We want people to be connected to a church body who are just out there and they're looking for purpose and they're looking for a place to belong and we're saying, we're over here. We're right here. We want to bridge racial divides. We want to love our neighbors. We want to, we want to, we want to walk in the goodness of our love of God's love for us. We, these are all the things we want. We want so much more, don't we? We want our kids protected. We want our families taken care of. We want, we want our jobs to be flourishing. The truth is, is we want a lot, don't we? We want more. And for those of us who are trying to really pursue Jesus, what we want is we want the kingdom come, God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Nonstop prayer for 21 days is not magical. It doesn't give us everything we want, but it's powerful. And that's what I want us to see today. It's a statement to one another that we believe God wants to do more and that he will do more. You see, it's okay for us to want more if we believe that God wants to do more. And I believe God wants to do more. And I believe he wants to give us more. We don't want, to be, we don't want God's church to be a house of activities or a house of events or a house of busy people or a house of distracted people. We want it to be a house of prayer. Are you with me? So I want to give us a simple guide to prayer before we leave today. And I got to hurry through this. So I've got three minutes and I've got way more than three minutes to talk about. Last year, we introduced you a prayer wheel to you. I'll show it to you real quick. We're not doing, I mean, I'm not going to go over this. I'm reminding you we're using this again this year. It takes, if you're like, how do I pray for an hour? This thing helps you lead you through an hour. We'll talk more about that, but it's a resource to help you guide you in prayer. I want to introduce you to another simple model of prayer that is uh, Pete Gregg, who did start the 24-7 prayer movement. He uses it in his prayer rooms, and I thought it was just so simple and so cool and so easy, so I just wanted to show, share it with you. But how many of you know that everything that we do in life that we want to become good at, we have to practice? Here's the thing. Here's the great thing about prayer is you can actually get better at it. And just like an athlete or a musician that understands muscle memory is necessary and know how to react and know how to do what to do in the right moment, prayer is the same way. 
we start to learn how to react and how to pray. So here we go. This is what it is, simple guide to prayer. The first one, it begins by showing up. Some people, some people like a chair. Some people like to take a walk. Some people like to you know, find their place that they, they feel like is, they need to pray. But when you show up in that place, you know that you are in a place that anchors you to prayer. And so by just showing up to that place, it matters. And I've told you before, when matters too. You need to show up when. For many of you, it's the morning. You win the morning. You win the day. And during 24-7 prayer, we're simply saying this, can we show up? <laughs> what if all of us decided to show up and let's pray here together in our prayer room and the act of showing up, we believe God is going to move. The second one is this, look up. So often when we pray, we come, into him, we come to him with need, don't we? We come to him and say, oh, uh, we start praying, Lord, you know, here, here I am and I have all these things. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? Can you help my family with this? And this is what we do often. And we begin in prayer by talking about the things that we would like God to do. And when we do that, we actually believe God is there for our purpose. And here's the thing. Sometimes we have to understand we need to begin prayer, prayer by stepping off the throne and making sure God is on the throne. And it is good for us to look up and for us to give him worship in our prayer. He is always worthy of our worship. In fact, he's always worthy of more worship than we've ever given. And so we need to begin our prayers by saying, Lord, not only am I showing up, I'm going to start looking up to you. and I'm going to worship you in prayer. And then the third one is we must shut up. We need to listen. I've had people ask me, you know, how do you listen? Do you just sit there and, you know, and then he just speaks? Or, or what is the deal? I've, I even had a friend tell me, you know, you need to be careful when you tell people that they can listen to God, um, that they can listen to the Holy Spirit. Like, there's some danger in that. And, and I just want you to know, there's, there, people struggle with this for a lot of reasons, but there's two ways that God speaks. And the first one is God always speaks to the Word, the Word of God, the Bible. And if you read the Bible, and there's not a page in the Bible that He's not going to speak. So maybe instead of just reading the Bible for information, we need to pray the Bible for revelation, right? So we need to pray the Bible to speak to us as we read it. But then also, when we are shutting up. The Bible also says that we need to be still and know that he's God. That we need, to, we, need to, we need to quiet ourselves from this busy and distracted world. We are told that God speaks in a still small voice so that those of us in this busy, hectic world, the only way we hear him in that way is if we go sit beside some quiet waters. Let the good shepherd guide us and speak to our hearts. And after you've shown up, after you've looked up, after you've shut up for a bit, then you can speak up. This is where we get to ask, where we get to seek, where we get to knock. We get to ask God for the things on our heart. And I picture it like this. It's like a little child gets to climb up into the lap of the father and gets to tell him the desires or tell, tell the desires of her heart or his heart. You know, the scripture often in prayer says when we ask, seek, knock, it's, it's like we have this good father that wants to give good things to us. And the, and the father always good thing, gives good things to the children, always gives good things to his children. And so we get to speak up, you know, blind Bartimaeus, when he comes up, Jesus can go, oh, I know what you want. I know what you want. You know, here you go. No, he said, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, of course, then blind Bartimaeus says, I want to see. He said, your, your faith has healed you. You see, he wants us to speak our desires. He wants us to actually verbalize them and articulate them. Even if he already knows that he wants you to speak it. 
Whenever he says, ask, seek, knock, whenever he says, sometimes a lot of us, when we, we just ask him and he's saying, will you, will you seek me now though? Will you go a little deeper than just asking? Will you begin to seek me? And as we seek him, we start to deepen our faith in him. We start to understand that God wants to do more in, around, and through us. And we start to see that sometimes it's not just enough to seek. We actually have to knock at the door with persistent, shameless audacity because he's wanting to grow our faith. Will you actually believe that I can do anything? Just ask me, seek me, knock at my door. He doesn't do it because he is trying to make us wait out of suffering. He's trying to do it to grow us as a people of faith, to trust him, to contend for breakthrough. I believe Jesus is calling us to be a house of prayer for all nations, for our city, for our families. I believe Jesus is passionate for that. And I believe we should be passionate for that. Let's pray together. And we're gonna sing, we're gonna sing a song today. One that we know well, where we declare we're no longer a slave to fear, but we are a child of God. And like I said, it's like we're climbing up into the lap of our Father. And we get to know that He is going to give us good gifts. He is going to give us what we ask for. And we don't need to fear. We don't need to have areas of inadequacy in which we say God would never do that for us. We don't need to hide in the outer courts. But He says, come on in. Come on into the Holy of Holies where there's no walls that divide us. Jesus has given you total access. So Father, I pray that as we, during these 21 days, I pray that we would show up, that we would look up, that we would shut up, that we would speak up, and that we would believe that anything is possible. And that as sons and daughters, as children of God, that we are entitled to enter the Holy of Holies, where you will speak, where you will forgive, where you will answer, where you will change our lives. Father, we pray that as a response today, we would believe this and we would step in and together we would plant a flag in the future, believing that God, whatever you have for us, we will trust you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? This altar's open. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.